start the week with Tim and Damo on the Unmade Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Damien Francis. Let's start the week. Today, Adlan's Me Too moment finally arrives in Australia. The radio industry gets its new cheerleader. And the little guys plan a big stunt to muscle in on the news media bargaining code dollars. Unmade. So, Demo, as, as I join you, it's Sunday night my time, Monday morning your time. Um, I'm thinking about maybe having a beer to finish the night. You're presumably not starting uh, the day that way, even though you do find yourself in a plague house. That's right. I, look, I did end Sunday night with a beer. It was needed. The The swimming pool from last week has vanished from my backyard, which is good, but... Uh, we have uh, welcomed with open arms COVID into our household. One of our family members has it. So I will be spending the next seven days at least uh, in lockdown. And touch wood that none of the rest of us get it. But uh, who knows? We're along for the fun ride. And thankfully, the uh, symptoms are very, very minimal at, at this stage. But tell me you haven't let the plague into your house. No. Uh, in the seven days since we last spoke, I have changed hemispheres. I was separated from my luggage for two or three days owing to a circumstance I still don't fully understand, but it involved my luggage. Did Darwin upgraded its runway, did it, while you were during that flight? I think it was probably downgraded as they, <laughs> they decided that we couldn't take off with the full weight. So my my, my luggage left Sydney, but they, they took it off my luggage in Darwin. So that <laughs> arrived in the back of a van three days later. But anyway, I am in the uh, UK now. So uh, that's where I'll be based for the for the next few weeks as we uh, make the, uh, the the time zones work. But I guess we should get to the first topic. Unmade. So the offices of one of Australia's biggest independent agencies will be, I suspect, in uproar this morning. Over the weekend, the managing director of this particular agency was publicly named as a sexual predator. Last week, Ella Campbell wrote on Mumbrella about her experiences of working in the Australian creative industry, saying, and I quote, the Australian creative industry lets a significant number of serious sexual assault and harassment cases go by unpunished with predators unscathed. Uh, this followed a similar post uh, also on Mumbrella three months ago by Campbell, where she described the industry as a, quote, misogynist playground. On Saturday, she went further, publishing a LinkedIn post in which she named her alleged abuser. Uh, Tim, what did she say? Okay, so uh, for legal reasons, we won't be saying his name here, and I'll explain our reasons for that in a moment. Um, so the quote from the LinkedIn post, which um, as we were chatting just before we started recording us, I know it's a bit of a cliche to say has gone viral, but it's already had nearly uh, nearly a thousand uh, likes as, as 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 we were recording, um, said on IWD, International Women's Day, I decided to come clean. My abuser is, and then she revealed his name. He has harassed and illegally touched other women to the point where he got fired by WPP. Then he created a business where he could do it all on his own. If you don't believe me, look that last fact up. See you in court, in the person's name. I've nothing to lose. You and, mentioning somebody else, took it all away from me. I'm sure your partner deserves more than an abusive sexual criminal. 
Thank you for revealing yourself. Yeah, Tim, this is a a challenging one. Can you explain sort of the the legal limitations here? So, look, this has gone back right the way since the whole Me Too movement began to take off globally, and particularly in the US, where a certain uh, number of people began to be held to account. Um, They had their moment of reckoning. But it didn't happen as much in Australia and certainly not in the advertising industry and certainly not to the extent that people were expecting in the main because of Australia's libel laws. So the, 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 the way that defamation works in Australia is if somebody publishes a piece of information and they're sued, they have to be able to prove on the balance of probabilities that this is a true allegation. So clearly for us, as we uh, record this now, we wouldn't be able to prove these allegations to be true. doesn't imply they're not true, but we would not be able to prove it. So all we can say is that they're allegations. So at the moment where this post has been is on LinkedIn. So the the, the the publication is by Ella Campbell herself on LinkedIn. And then what becomes a sort of interesting side issue is, depending on the reaction of the person she's made the allegations about, um, LinkedIn will have the choice of whether to leave that post up and join the responsibility for publishing it or take it down if there's a complaint made. So that will would, 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 would be interesting in itself. But that's the main um, legal limitation and the, the reason we're not naming a name uh, and the reason why, when although it, it feels like it is almost an open secret in the advertising industry that there's certain people's names circulate time and time again, they very rarely see the light of day in the way that they have today. Yeah, absolutely. There's been a lot of talk over years about certain people and about naming names, and this seems to be uh, one of the first examples of that actually happening. But what happens? What happens now? There's, like you said, there's been a lot of traction on this post. Almost a thousand people. I hate to use the term liked, but a, a thousand people have, have have clicked on some sort of response on it, including some very high up people in the industry. What happens next uh, for the people involved and for the agency involved? Well, this is the interesting thing. I mean, there's, there's probably two what happens next. I mean, the, the major one is there are a number of women who have, and, and, and mainly women, who have unpleasant stories to share about their experiences in the media and marketing industry. Now, I wonder with Ella having taken a mo- that, that lead, whether other people will now have the confidence to share in a similar way their experiences and also name names, because that's been one of the things which has not really happened in the, 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 the movement around advertising agencies locally. So you now have this question of, here is an agency with, according to their website, employ about 80 people. Um, again, for the same legal reasons, we won't say the name of the agency, but it's one that has three offices, including in New South Wales and in Queensland. Um, I must admit, it was it's not a top-tier agency in terms of visibility. I didn't really know anything about them at all, to be honest. So 
if you're playing a guessing game, um, well, firstly, you, at the moment, you don't really need to because it's very easy to find the allegation on, on LinkedIn anyway. But if you were trying to guess the agency, I don't think it's the first agency you would think of because it's not a particularly well-known name. But the challenge for this agency is they've got some quite big clients. They will be seeing this post on LinkedIn or people will be talking about it. So I suspect there's a very big challenge for for. for you know, for this agency and how they deal with it when, you know, their their managing director has been accused of these serious things. So you mentioned WPP, Tim. Uh, how are they going to react? Of course, the dynamics are a bit different now in, in Australia being that the ANZ business is part of uh, WPP PLC. Yeah, when, when these allegations would have occurred, they would have been uh, part of the STW group then, which, as you say, was since subsumed into the main WPP. Did they behave appropriately at the time? We don't know, but they may have questions to answer about that. And I suspect other than that, they would be sensible to take things slowly. Next, a new boss for Commercial Radio Australia. And if you or someone you care about needs support, please contact 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732. And in an emergency, of course, uh, dial triple zero. Unmade. The radio industry's trade body, Commercial Radio Australia, announced a new CEO over the weekend. Uh, Tim, who is it? I personally thought this was going to be one of the harder positions to, to fill, and it hasn't been a quick one to fill. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, Joan Warner, the previous CEO of Commercial Radio Australia, who had an innings of more than 20 years, so it was a big innings, uh, has telegraphed for some time that she wanted to leave. And I think it took a while for the uh, board of Commercial Radio Australia to uh, to be persuaded by her that she meant it. So um, it has been uh, some time in Joan's exit. So um, she's being replaced by um, somebody who I, I must admit hadn't previously been on 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 my radar coming out of the UK. Um, the, the, the name is Ford Ennels. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, who um, is currently CEO of the industry body Digital Radio UK. Now, Ad News has reported that he's got some very big scores uh, on the board. Uh, they've said that uh, during his tenure, there he trebled to almost two thirds of all of radio listening uh, digital radio. Uh, he's worked for uh, some very big brands as a marketer as well. Was this um, for CRA something they had to do, look overseas to find uh, to find a, a replacement for Joan? There didn't seem to be anyone overly obvious, I guess, in the Australian market. Probably two things to separate out there. One is digital radio is very much a rising tide. So, um, you know, a, a big part of his brief was obviously to to, to oversee the uptake of DAB, the kind of the you know the the, the version of broadcasting, dig, but broadcast digital radio that sits along AM and FM, which um, around the world was a relatively slow take up. I mean, it's still been slow in Australia, but was also pretty slow in the UK over the years. But obviously, began to get there. And of course, there is always this question about whether it actually will be a slightly um, 
a slightly pointless transition because streaming has come along so fast as well. So, um, you know, that, that becomes the question anyway. Um, so I, 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 you, you, you can see where you look outside. I suspect there's also just the politics of, you know, there are healthy degrees of hatred might be too strong a word, but not by far between the different uh, radio groups within Australia. So hiring somebody who already had ties to one of the groups potentially created just sort of problems from the stakeholders, I suppose. So, you know, that made it a genuine overseas search as much as anything, you know, sort of fully international search. Although I know that there, there were people local to Australia who threw their hat in the ring. But, but you know, it's probably, you know, it's definitely one of those things where I find myself thinking about the CRA, you know, one of the, one of the great achievements of Commercial Radio Australia was hanging on to that old-fashioned diary system of radio ratings, which, um, you know, probably uh, favoured the incumbent. So it's, it's, it's one reason why we've seen the status quo stay in place so, so long. But they're finally beginning to make the move toward that. And, uh, you know, I suspect that somebody coming from that digital background will not only accelerate towards the digitisation of the ratings, but also recognising that the audio industry itself is changing and that um, we're not just talking radio anymore. We are talking podcasting. We're talking streaming. Um, so it's very much a moment of change. So you've mentioned uh, some of the intricacies of, of the Australian radio industry. What are the biggest challenges you think that are going to face um, Annals as he comes into the market and, and takes over uh, from uh, from Warner? Look, I think one of the things is, is, is actually it's quite hard work running any of the trade industry bodies because you've got so many different stakeholders who want so many different things they're so competitive with each other so you know one of the one of the things i think joan takes a great deal of credit for is is i think actually because you know she's she, she's a sort of no-nonsense figure so i think a, a lot of her board was 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 you know in a good-natured way slightly scared of her um now obviously coming in that'll be a completely different dynamic in the market now but the, the 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 getting to know not just the stakeholders but the market itself will be the challenge but also of course arriving at a time when everything is changing so you've got the the traditional radio broadcasters wanting to hang on to their business model as much as they can and to the advertising dollars and not see them leak beyond their organizations and obviously that also creates an opportunity for them with streaming with podcasting which particularly southern cross or stereo and um arn have gone really heavily into and are going really heavily into so there's a lot of transition going on um so that um uh, in the end, you, you you can at least judge by results the boss of these trade industry bodies because you can look at how much share a particular medium gets and whether that medium goes goes up or down in the amount of share it receives under that CEO. So, you know, for Joan Warner, she's done a good job for radio and uh, now we'll have to see how Ford goes. Like you say, she's done a, a good job for radio. She's become a, a highly respected figure within the uh, radio industry. Uh, a little bit about the legacy that, that she leaves as she steps out of the hot seat. I think the main thing is getting the industry to speak as one voice. Um, 
they, they, there are constant times when the TV industry have their big fights. Uh, radio, hey, look, the program directors will, will swap a few barbs on ratings day, but broadly it speaks as one industry. And then the fact that the... The, the, the trade press still happily tells the story of share each time the um, seven times a year the, um, the the surveys come out. The fact that they still focus on percentage share, not the uh, average reach or the average listening at the time, which actually can be a surprisingly low number. Um, so the narrative around radio and how it's been marketed to the industry has actually been very good. Coming up next, the fight for the little guys to get some of the digital spoils. Unmade. More news about the news media bargaining code this morning, particularly in the SMH and AFR. A little bit to unravel here. Uh, The SMH and Zoe Samios, uh, also in The Age, of course, uh, reporting about an obscene power imbalance. Uh, the AFR and Miranda Ward having a look at uh, progress with The Guardian. Uh, Tim, where would you like to start there? Well, let's let's start by pointing out uh, obscene power imbalances in quotes rather than 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 your view. Um, yes, it's too early from I, the morning for me to make up uh, <laughs> some sort of words as uh, interesting as that. So this so this is quite interesting. So something that's been going on. Really, I suppose, since the news media bargaining code leapt into fruition out of the ACCC, um, it was the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission's method of trying to rebalance the playing field between Google and Facebook and publishers, uh, recognising that there was a power imbalance possibly an obscene one. So the idea was that the news media bargaining code would be created and that these companies could be designated under the code, which would mean they'd then have to follow a particular process for negotiations if they were designated. And the if is really important because um, what the sort of nod and the wink given to Google and Facebook was, was if you do enough deals with the publishers to find ways of giving them funding, then you won't be, you won't need to be designated. Now that's been great for the big end of town. So we've seen some really uh, strong financials from nine, from News Corp to a certain extent from Seven West Media and one or two other players where the money has started to flow from Google and Facebook because they found ways of doing a deal just to avoid being uh, being designated. Um, but a lot of people were left out. Um, some of the organisations mentioned in the in the story, which is running across the Herald and the Age, uh, Concrete Playground, Broadsheet Media, um, and Star Observer, amongst others. Also, famously, uh, SBS and the Conversation were left out. Now, this is being left out of the Facebook deals. So, uh, we're also seeing a bit of a two-speed thing where Google has done more deals and Facebook slightly fewer, and it feels a bit like they're trying to figure out what the bare minimum they can get away with is not to be designated. And we're at the point a year on from all of this deal where this is all being reviewed by the government at the moment. So it's kind of a critical moment. So that's what's going on. And then what becomes quite interesting is the small end of town are beginning to feel like they're not getting anywhere. You know, so 
there have been previous reporting suggesting that a lot of their time has been wasted for sort of meetings that don't go anywhere with with again they've pointed the finger more at facebook so um they have reached out to um an issues um organization called doa consulting which um is is uh, i guess a distant cousin or not so distant cousin of think about so um adam ferrier um the uh, consumer psychologist and ebony gala are among those who've been involved and they're organizing a campaign which will say perhaps up to 50 small publishers will switch off their publishing for the day as a way of bringing attention to the fact that they're not being included in part of the deal and that perhaps there's um there's something a little unfair about that given that they also suffer at the hands of the you know the the imbalance in the programmatic advertising chain so this is going to be uh, quite an interesting process yeah absolutely i should probably point out as well doa decade of action if i'm not mistaken rather than dead on arrival which uh when the agency launched uh, was one of the the funnier conversations that went on around the the time uh, Tim, they're suggesting that what might happen is there will be a, essentially a day of no action where no stories go up and, and instead on, on those uh, publishers involved, there'll be uh, an article which uh, requests that readers uh, get behind uh, the small publishers to, to give them a bit of weight. Personal opinion, of course, do you think something like that will help them gain any traction? Well, I've got a vague memory that it's been done before. I'm trying to remember what the campaign is, and perhaps, I'm not certain, I'm thinking perhaps something similar was done at the time of the marriage equality vote that a number of the... um, uh, kind of independent publishers had some sort of switch off for the day. I, I I couldn't say for certain that was what the cause was, but I definitely remember it having been done before. So of course, yeah, it'll be interesting as a conversation starter. I guess the um, the counterproductive thing would be if um, the big players don't take part, which obviously they won't, and if that means that the public don't particularly notice. And now moving on to a publication who's had a little bit more uh, success uh, in the news media bargaining code environment uh, is The Guardian. Miranda Ward and the AFR reporting that uh, The Guardian will be essentially accelerating uh, the hiring of a number of journalists among other staff to particularly focus in on uh, on state reporting, individual state uh, reporting. Uh, What do you think about that, Tim? Look, this is interesting because you know the the Guardian came to Australia quite quite gradually and deliberately, I suppose. You know, it was um, it was funded for its first or underwritten for its first three years by Graham Wood, um, who previously um, sort of philanthropically uh, funded the Global Mail, which didn't work out. But then Malcolm Turnbull. Um, takes credit, or certainly uh, according to his his own autobiography, takes credit for connecting um, uh, Graham Wood with The Guardian. Um, so he provided funding, I think, in the first three years of something like thirty million, if I remember rightly. Although actually, it worked well enough that he got his money back in the end. So what we're seeing now is the suggestion that this ten to fifteen million a year of uh, Google and Facebook money. Um, that the Guardian is getting, um, the the AFR 
Randall Ward from the AFR has been talking to uh, the Guardian's managing director, Dan Stinton, this week and uh, linking that to the decision to expand by something like um, 50 staffers, of whom about 80%, which if my maths is correct, is 40 people or 40 roles, um, are journalists. So that's, you know, that's, that, that's a significant number. So that's the thing. Although it's possible to be cynical about the news media bargaining code because it was, you know, it was a, it, it really was a shakedown. Um, it also has had quite a positive result for the people who have been lucky in that, um, you know, it will actually pay for some public service journalism. Yeah, absolutely, Tim. Uh, we have seen a number of journalism roles and, and investment in uh, bringing up younger journalists uh, as well. Do you think this is uh, something that's sustainable? Because there were questions being thrown about about whether if uh, Google and Facebook weren't designated under the news media bargaining code because of the deals that they've done, that the uh, I guess the progress we've seen wouldn't necessarily be sustainable o- over the years. Yeah, a couple of questions there. One is there's, you know, at least a reasonable chance we're about to change governments. You know, the, you'll, you'll see that uh, in the papers this morning, there's another set of uh, polling which suggests that Labour uh, is now neck and neck on preferred prime minister and well ahead on preferred party. So then the question becomes, will the uh, next communications minister, who will probably be Michelle Rowland, if so, will they have the same appetite to take on um, Google and Facebook in the same way, or will it kind of fade away um, if there were a change of uh, ch- change of government? So that's one big thing. And the other is, is this a moment if Google and Facebook can just navigate through, get through the review, and then it'll all go away? Um, so I, I I think that's an open question on whether this is a you know a, a short term pain for them or whether each term a, each time a new publisher qualifies to um, uh, to be be recognised by the um, Australian Communications and Media Authority as an uh, as a news authority a news producing company whether they'll then be able to come knocking on the door. I th- I rather suspect that as the steam comes out of it, uh, then probably those who uh, uh, aren't in the first wave will probably be out of luck, is my guess. That's it for today. There'll be another edition of the Unmade Email on Wednesday and the next edition of the Unmade Podcast will drop on Thursday with another chapter of the audio version of Tim's book, Media Unmade. It's a doozy of a chapter this week. The sad story of how Bauer Media wrecked the Australian magazine industry. Now, hopefully you enjoyed today's edition of the new Start the Week podcast. We'd love to hear what you think of it at letters at unmade.media. That's letters at unmade.media. Today's podcast was produced with the usual enthusiastic support of Abe's Audio. See you next time. Have a great week. Toodle pip. Unmade.